Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of the Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of the Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours, and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to The Core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet. Good morning. Welcome to the Core Business Show. We're going to continue our series of the power of selling. As Zig says, a prospect must buy you before he buys your product or service. And having the right mental attitude is an absolute must. When Zig travels the country, one of the things he tells salespeople everywhere is to believe in themselves and believe in their profession. That means having a healthy self-image, something Zig Ziglar himself had to learn the hard way. Basically, in the world of selling, to build a career, we need to understand that what the prospect wants is a solution to the problem they have. And if we offer a solution, they're wide open to it. It's just that they've got to believe what we're saying. We've got to be convincing. We've got to be professional. Now, what I'm really talking about now is the right mental attitude as far as selling is concerned. And I want to delve into that a little bit. I want to talk about your attitude towards you, or in other words, your self-image. I want to talk about your attitude towards your prospects and your attitude toward the profession of selling itself. 
Now, what has self-image got to do with uh, closing sales? Chris Hegarty, one of the top sales trainers in America, says that 63% of all sales interviews end with no attempt to close the sale. And the reason they don't is they fear rejection. And so they will talk and talk and talk and never attempt to make the sale because they cannot stand the thought of that uh, fear of rejection. How important is your self-image in real estate? I'll use this as an example. How many of you have ever been out working your farm one morning and you see a for sale by owner sign in the yard? Well, you circle the block three times because you want to make certain the neighborhood is safe. I mean, you should be careful. And then finally you get up and have courage. You go knock on the door and you start your presentation. And the nice lady behind the screen door there says, just a minute, let me ask you a question. Are you selling real estate? Just answer yes or no. Well, you've got to fess up, you know, that uh, that happens to be the business you're in. And she said, well, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the other three who were by here. I'm not interested in you selling my home. I'm going to sell it. I know ten times as much about it as you'll ever know. Planted every bush and shrub you see out there. Painted the house the last time myself. I know every nook and corner and cranny of it. Why should I give you thousands of dollars to do something I know lots more about than you do? And furthermore, I don't want to hear more about it. And she slams the door in your face. Now, remember, you've got a lousy self-image. You don't like you. And that old bitty sure doesn't like you. <laughs> Poor little me. Don't nobody like me. So what do you do? You do the only thing you can do. You go to the coffee shop for a cup of coffee and have your own private little pity party, as our <laughs> Mrs. Mamie McCullough would say. And while you're drinking that first cup of coffee, it dawns on you that what you really need is a second cup of coffee. And while you're drinking the second cup of coffee, you finally figure it all out. Why didn't I think about this before? It is so obvious. What I need to do is go back to the office, get all the details cleaned up, handle all of my correspondence, make all those back telephone calls, handle all of these little things because nobody can really sell with all these nagging details hanging over you. And then next Monday morning, I'll get out there fresh and clear with a good clean desk and a good clean mind, and I'll knock them dead. Besides, it's already Wednesday. <laughs>
from very personal experience. When I entered the world of selling at the age of 20, I had an extremely poor self-image. I literally was scared to death of my shadow. I had rejected myself. The image I had of myself was of a little guy from a little town who had struggled all of his life. Let me share with you just a couple of little, little incidents. I could have a prospect here and a prospect next door and a prospect 20 miles down the highway. Now, I would call on this first uh, prospect right here, and then as a young salesman, I had an incredible ability. I could actually look at the outside of a house and tell you if it were the right psychological moment <laughs> to make the call. In my mind, I could have them eating lunch from 11 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I could visualize the baby asleep or the husband and wife having a big old argument. I could visualize everything going on. And besides, I needed to plan what I was going to say. And so down the highway, 20 miles down there, I'd go uh, to see this new prospect. I justified the fact that I was busy working. But the truth of the matter is, I had rejected me these people had rejected me, and I was not ready to go next door and face rejection again. I did some things as a young salesman. I'm going to share one of them with you because I don't believe there's a man or a woman or a young boy or girl who will ever listen to these recordings who will ever be any broker or any scared or any more despondent or any more down in the dumps as a salesperson than I have been in my lifetime. I don't believe there's anybody who will ever listen to these recordings who's quit in their own minds as many times as I have quit in my own mind. Let me give you a classic example of what I'm talking about. For several months, it was nip and tuck as to whether we would even be able to continue to eat. And being in the cookware business, you know, that's pretty serious. We uh, were behind in all of our bills. On one occasion, they cut my telephone off. On another occasion, they cut my lights off. Had to park my car three blocks from the house so I'd have something to drive the next day. And I don't know if any of you know what I'm talking about or not. <laughs> but things were tough. Never will forget some of the other guys were putting on group demonstrations. And I wanted to put on the group demonstrations. That's where, as I was talking earlier, you buy up a bunch of food, cook it for the hostess, see the prospects next day. You give the hostess a nice premium for having the prospects in. Well, these guys were selling like crazy, and I was struggling to survive on the individual calls. And so I wanted to do a group demonstration. Had some problems, though. Number one, didn't know how to cook. Number two, had never seen a demonstration. Number three, didn't have the money to buy the food or the premium. But with the confidence that generally goes with ignorance, I figured I could handle the first two. That is, learn how to cook and read the book and figure out how to put on a demonstration. Heard of a Mrs. B.C. Moore, and to this day, though this was 34 years ago, I can see it in my own mind. She lived at 2210 High Street, Columbia, South Carolina, right there on the corner of Colonial Drive. It was in a little white frame, two-story house on the top of the hill, had a big old fig tree in the backyard. The house was totally uninsulated, and she had a gas stove. I heard she had a set of our cookware, didn't like it because she didn't know how to use it. I went to Mrs. Moore and volunteered to teach her how to use that set of cookware if she would buy the groceries and invite in a couple of prospects. She agreed to do that. She invited a Mr. and Mrs. Clarence Spence and a Mr. and Mrs. M.P. Gates to the demonstration. I remember the demonstration vividly. I must have lost five pounds cooking that meal that evening. Hot? I cannot believe any place ever got that hot. 
But apparently everything was all right. At least I didn't burn anything. At the end of the demonstration, uh, Mrs. Spence, who was Mrs. Moore's sister and who was living upstairs, gave a five-minute speech on why she could not buy a set of cookware. They were building their new house, had a lot of, buy a lot of new furniture. They were already behind in some of their bills. They were broke. I mean, she went on and on. I started my own little private pity party right there. But she ended it up with the most beautiful words any salesman can ever hear. As she said, but you know, I'm always broke. I'm always in debt. And if I don't go ahead and get me that set of cookware now, I know I'll never get it. I'll take it. <laughs> Mrs. M.P. Gates made the same little speech. I don't know whether the ladies were trying to impress their husbands or me or what the story was, but she made the same little speech, and she ended up by saying, but if I don't go ahead and get that nice set of matched cookware right now, I'll never get it. I'll take it. Now, folks, you got two prospects there with the money in their hot little hands saying, I'll take it. Now, suppose you were the salesman working on a commission, and you're so broke that if it didn't cost but 50 cents to go around the world, you couldn't have gotten out of sight. <laughs> what would you have done? What would you have done at that precise moment, anybody? Write the order. Sure you would. Guess what old Zig did? Scout's honor, as we'd say down home, I did then exactly what I'm doing now. I looked at my watch. I said, ladies, I'd like the best in the world to sell you the set of cookware, but I can't because I've got another appointment in just a few minutes, and I'm going to have to rush like crazy in order to get there. With two ladies with the money in their hot little hands saying, I'll take it, I said, oh, no, you won't. I've got something important to do. I've got an appointment down the way. Now, when I got there, naturally, the prospect was not there. I did sell Mrs. Gates and Mrs. Spence the next day. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you in your dumbest, greenest day would ever have done such a ridiculously uh, crazy thing as that? What I'm really saying is, if you got sense enough to get out of a telephone booth without written directions on the side, my friend, there is hope for you. <laughs> I believe you can turn things around in one day. I believe you can do some amazing things. That doesn't mean that in one day you'll never have problems again, but I believe you can get started in the right directions with one bit of inspiration or one bit of instruction if you yourself are willing to take the initiative in learning and then doing. Never will I forget it. At an all-day training session in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spent the day, didn't learn a thing. You ever do one of those? I did. Drove back that night, had a demonstration, got in about 11.30. The baby kept us up most of the rest of the evening. 5.30 the next morning, the opportunity clock sounded off to roll me out of bed. Now, negative folks call it alarm clocks. Uh, force of habit rolled me out of bed. I cracked the Venetian blinds, looked out. There were 10 inches of snow on the ground. I was driving a Crosley automobile without a heater. Now, you think a Volkswagen is a compact. Let me tell you, the Volkswagen is a limousine compared to what the Crosley was. With that snow on the ground, no heater, tired as I was, I did what any intelligent human being would do. That's right. I got right back in bed. <laughs> but as I lay there, the words of my mother kept coming back to me. Son, if you're in something, get in it. If you're not in it, get out. You're not being fair to either you or the man you're working for. And Mother used that old colloquial expression. If you're hired out to a man, you're hired out to do everything he wants you to do. 
And if you cannot in good conscience do that, then you also should get out of that business. It's not fair to either one of you. One of the things I had promised my sales manager and friend by then, Bill Cranford, was if he'd give me a chance to sell the cookware. You see, it took me over two months to convince him that I could sell it, literally. I worked on a commission, had to buy my own samples, and uh, he still didn't think I could sell. And, of course, as I've indicated, the first two and a half years, all I did was prove he'd been right to start with. Now, that didn't mean it didn't sell much, because I did. I, I sold my furniture, sold my car. <laughs> and that's not too far from the truth. But I had promised, Bill, that I would never miss a sales meeting. And in two and a half years, though I had not set the woods on fire, so to speak, Though I was struggling and starving, not only had I never missed a sales meeting, I had never even been late for one. And as I lay there, I knew that I could not stay in that bed. I got out. That's the day my whole world turned around. That's the reason I believe that when I die, and I hope that's going to be a long way off, I sometimes wrestle with what I won't put on my tombstone. I think I want Zig Ziglar salesman and before the evening is over you'll understand why i'm so proud to be a salesman but i might have he wouldn't quit because folks i'm absolutely convinced that is what separates ultimately the extremely successful professional in any field of endeavor whether it's in selling dentistry medicine law or a household executive i believe that ultimately is what separates the successful from those who just struggle along I got out of that bed that morning. I went to that meeting. There were only about 20 people there, and a man named P.C. Merrill, who was my hero, was conducting the session that day. Mr. Merrill had written the training programs, had set all of the training records. When the session was over, and to this day, I have no earthly idea what was covered in the regular session. But when it was over, he called me aside, and he said, Zig, I'd like to talk with you privately. Thrill me to death that my hero wanted to spend a couple of minutes with me alone. I'll tell you, the whole conversation couldn't have lasted more than two minutes. He said to me, Zig, I've watched you for two and a half years, and I have never seen such a waste. Now, that'll get your attention. I said, well, Mr. Merrill, what do you mean? And he said, Zig, I believe you could be a great one. I believe you could be a national champion. I believe you could go to the top. I believe that someday you could even become an executive in this company if you just believed in yourself and went to work on a regular schedule. All of my life I had seen myself as a survivor, the little guy from the little town who would struggle. Here's a man in whom I had complete faith and trust who said you could be a great one. I believed him. When I had the demonstration that night, I did not go there as the little guy who would struggle all of his life. I went there as a national champion. Three prospects, three easiest sales ever made in my life. Before the year was over, I was the number two salesman in America out of over 7,000 salespeople. I'd swapped that little Crosley for a luxury automobile, had the best promotion the company had, the next year, I was the highest paid man in the United States with that entire company as a manager. Now, folks, the only thing that changed was my image. But now, let me tell you something. Please don't miss this because this is a critical point. I knew by then how to knock on those doors. 
I knew how to conduct those demonstrations. I knew how to close the sale. Zig Ziglar, the salesman, was ready. But Zig Ziglar, the man, was not ready until that day when Mr. Merrill changed my thinking about myself by saying some important words to me. When you see yourself, when that image improves, when it changes, then you're going to be far more effective as a salesperson. That's the reason I urge you, get involved in whatever is necessary to get your image where it belongs. And again, there are many good books on the market. There are many good recordings. There are many good courses. There are many things you can do which definitely will improve that image. The second phase of attitude I want to talk about is your attitude towards your prospect. How do you see the other person? If you see them as a sale where you can make a buck, it's going to come through. But if you see that individual as a person who has some needs and you can help meet those needs, then you're going to have an infinitely better chance of making that sale. Your relationship with others, your attitude towards them is so critically important. When you get wrapped up thinking in terms of, boy, if I make this sale, I'm going to make this money. If I make this sale, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do the other. Sure as shooting, uh, the feeling which you have there is transferred to the other person, and you're not going to sell nearly as much. You've got to look at that prospect and solve their problem. Again, again, and yet again, remember, the prospect wants his problem solved. If what you're selling will solve it, he's open to a skillful presentation by a sincere man or woman who's concerned about solving their problems. You see, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm really saying is if you want to build a career in the world of selling, you need to get deeply involved in seeing things from the other side of the table. We'll hear more now about the sales profession, how America is a land of salespeople, about the importance of pride. Here's Zig Ziglar. In building winning attitudes and developing winning relationships with others, one of the critical things that a salesperson must understand is that you must not confuse your taste or your situation with theirs. You might be conservative, they might be liberal. They might like bright colors, you might like subdued colors. They might like stripes and uh, you like patterns. But what you're trying to do is understand the things that they want. Now this is especially significant in dealing with the financial realm. If you're selling uh, high-priced jewelry or luxury automobiles or half-million-dollar homes or something like that, and while the prospects are looking at it, you're thinking to yourself, boy, I sure couldn't afford anything like this. You better be careful that you will communicate that to that prospect. You're not buying. You're selling. You want to help them solve their problems, fill their needs, and find out what it is they want. Yes, your attitude to you, towards yourself is important. Your attitude towards others is important, and your attitude toward the profession of selling is important. America is the greatest land because we're a land of salespeople. Salespeople have always played a tremendously important part in uh, America, 
in the role we play in the activities that we have. Now, when I talk about things like this, about selling his courtship, about servicing accounts, about the fact that America is a great land because we're a land of salespeople, we need to explore really what the advantages are and the benefits of being a salesperson might be. I can say to you that if my son were to ever come to me and ask me what career I think would offer him the most security, I would tell him, son, I believe the profession of selling is the most secure of all the professions. If he would say to me, well, Dad, isn't that a commission job? I would say, yes, son, selling is a commission job, as is everything else, a commission job. Whether you're a dentist, a doctor, a secretary, or the manager of a plant, you're on commission for the very simple reason that if you don't perform effectively, you're soon going to lose your job or your customers or your business. My friend, you're on a commission whether you're on a salary or not. And you can even go to the top. You can get the biggest job in the whole world. You can get to be the president of the United States, and if you don't produce, they'll flat get you. Yes, selling is a tremendously secure profession for those who produce. Never will I forget a number of years ago I was conducting a seminar in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, similar to this one this evening. And before I got started, two young men came up and said, uh, we'd like to get our money back on our tickets. We just lost our job as salespeople. And if we're not in the world of selling, we, we don't need to have more sales training. So I said to the guys, well, look, fellas, let me ask you, do you like to sell? They said, sure, we love to sell. I said, well, what happened? They said, well, in a nutshell, we had a personality conflict with the manager, and uh, we no longer have a job. Guys, uh, I'd say 28 to 30 years old, very neatly dressed, aggressive-looking, sharp young men. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Would you like to stay in the world of selling? They said, sure. I said, if I can get you a dozen interviews tonight, would you be willing to fill them? They said, we sure would. And so when uh, we got to a particular point uh, in the presentation that evening, I asked the audience a question, which is the same question I will ask you. How many of you have been in the world of selling as long as four years? Can I see your hands? How many of you remember the recession of 1981-82? Can I see your hand? How many of you made more money in uh, 81 than you did in 1980? I'm talking about selling now, okay? How many of you made more money in 1982 selling than you did in 1981? How many of you made more money in 1983 than you did in 1982? I'm talking about in selling. How many of you are making more money in 1984 than you made in 1983? Can I see your hand? Now, let me tell you something about security and selling your business is never good or bad out there. Your business is either good or bad right here between your own two ears. And if you're thinking it's thinking, your business is going to be in exactly the same shape. Let me tell you why selling is so secure. We deal with recessions, and you did say you remembered that recession of 81 and 82. We deal with recessions entirely different in the sales world than they do in the rest of the business world. In the rest of the business world, when a recession is announced, you know, they cut out some of the lights, they cut down on the advertising, they let three of the janitors go, two of the secretaries, four of the file clerks, and they cut here and there and the other, and they call a local pity party, you know, get everybody together, 
and say things are tight, but we're going to pull in the belts, we're going to cut down the lights, and with a lot of luck and help from everybody, I just believe we're going to make it. We've got to stay with it. Oh, the way they handle it is really something. In the world of selling, the way they handle it, they get everybody together, and the sales manager gets up and gives them a little speech. He said, we figured out the problem. Everybody's saying there's a recession going on out there. We figured out how to beat it. All we've got to do is figure out a way to reduce our sales. Now, what he generally says? Yeah, in a pig's eye he does. He gets up there and he says, you've been reading in the newspaper where there is a recession. Well, as my friend Don Hudson says, the media has accurately predicted 18 of the last two recessions. And I believe he knew exactly what he was talking about. You see, when a sales organization uh, is encountering a recession, they get everybody together. The sales manager gets up and says, you've been hearing about all these things. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put on a contest like you have never seen before. We're going to have prizes galore. We're going to embark on a new motivation and training program. We're going to bring out some new items and some new ideas. We're going to get out there and we're going to sell, sell, sell. We're going to sell more than ever before. Now, at that point, I asked, uh, the audience, how many of you during the recession of 1981-82, which is what I'll ask you right now, knew somebody who was honest, sincere, dedicated, conscientious, and hardworking, who was in uh, the uh, flying airplanes, or being a stewardess, or being an educator, or a plant worker, or a manufacturer, or a laborer? How many of you knew some people who had ability, but who nevertheless lost their job during those 81-82? Sure, we all did, regardless there. We knew lots of people who lost their jobs. But I challenge you to name me just one honest, sincere, dedicated, conscientious, hardworking, productive salesperson who lost their job during the Depression. You see, any time anything's going on, a salesperson can, in fact, get a job the day they lose the one they had if they will really get out and sell as hard for the new job as they were selling products before. Yes, selling is a remarkably secure profession. What happens when you sell things? Well, let me give you an exact idea. Down in Cuba, when Castro and his Cuban cohorts took over uh, back, I believe it was 1958, had salesmen everywhere. Business was good. Uh, no products were rationed. Nothing was in short supply. Things were going great. Then the communists came in and set up that socialistic system. You don't see salespeople anywhere. Many things are rationed. Many things you can't get at any price. A lot of people say, well, you know, if things are in short supply, you sure don't need salespeople. But let me tell you something, my friends. When they had the salesman, they had the surplus. Because, you see, salespeople get things to happening. They move merchandise, and that is what it's really all about. Now, let me tell you actually what happens when you make a sale. A lot of people don't really understand the critical importance of their role. But when you make a sale, an awful lot of things happen. To begin with, you write the order on an order pad. How many of you use an order pad or sales slip when you make a sale? Can I see your hands? I guess that includes everybody that sells, doesn't it? Well, you got to understand that that order pad did not start out as an order pad. It started out as a tree. And somebody had to go out in the woods and cut the tree down before you could make the sale, I, uh, you know, before you'd have the order pad. You're the person who paid us people who went out in the woods and cut that tree down when you got out there and made a sale. They 
haul the two to the paper mill. You're the person who paid those people to haul that two to the paper mill when you got out there and made that sale. Hundreds of people involved in manufacturing that tree in the paper. You're the person who paid those people to manufacture that tree in the paper when you got out there and made that sale. Not only that, but you see, when you made the sale, you made a profit. Not only did you make a profit, but your manager made a profit, and if you're lucky, your company made a profit. That way you can stay in business. You take part of your profit, you go to the grocery store and you buy a can of beans, and the grocery man in essence said, if you're going to buy my beans, I've got to get some more. He goes to the wholesaler and said, need more beans. Wholesaler said, if you're going to buy my beans, I've got to get some more. He goes to the cannery and said, need more beans. The cannery said, if you're going to buy my beans, I've got to get some more. He goes to the farmer and said, need more beans. farmer said, if you're going to buy my beans, I've got to raise some more to do that. Got to get a new tractor because the one I got is all worn out. He goes down to the and said, hey, I've got to have a new tractor. Embedded said, if you're going to buy my new tractors, I've got to manufacture some more. I go to the manufacturer because this is the last one I got. He goes to the manufacturer and said, got to have more tractors. Manufacturer said, if you're going to buy more tractors, I've got to manufacture some more myself. To do that, got to bring in iron, copper, plastic, steel, aluminum, lead, zinc, spark plugs. We've got to set up factories all over the world. And all of that happened one day, my friend, because you got out there and made a sale. Yes, selling is a marvelous profession. And when somebody says anything derogatory about the profession of selling, you ought to tell them what I just told you. <laughs> Except speed it up a little bit, I mean. You don't want to spend too much time on it. Whether the person is a postmaster or the postman, whether it's the superintendent or the teacher, whether it is the general or the private, whether it's the owner of the biggest corporation or the guy who sweeps the floor, anybody who says anything derogatory about the profession of selling, you ought to level on them, look them dead center and say, my friends, you've got the freedom and the security and the income you've got because there are people like me who are selling and keeping the wheels of industry turning. Now, why do I stress this so strongly? Because your pride in your profession will give you a definite added advantage over those who do not understand the advantages of being in the world of selling. There's so many factors, and a lot of times people say, well, Zig, if it's such a great profession, why does it have the kind of reputation that it does? Well, one of our basic problems is that we've sold our goods, our products, and our services, but we've never really sold our profession of selling. I've had any number of people who took great pride in the company they represented, took great pride in what the, the company itself stood for, but for whatever reason, they seem to be a little embarrassed to say, I am a salesperson. One of the greatest professions of all. That's the first thing. We've not really sold the profession itself. The second thing is, in the early days, the Yankee peddler uh, achieved a degree of notoriety that, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people still relate to. Many people think a good salesman is somebody who makes you want something you don't really need or high pressures you into buying something you don't really want. And as you know, as professional, that is the furthest thing from what a salesperson really is. And then Arthur Miller wrote that abominable monstrosity called Death of a Salesman. And not only did they have it as a New York play, it looks like, for years of time, but they put it on television, not once, not twice, but three times. And then, uh, as if that wasn't enough, the rascal goes to China and sells them on the idea that they ought to be showing about Willie Loman. 
the epitome of a loser has no bearing, no relationship whatever to what a professional salesperson is. And today, of course, Dustin Hoffman is starring in Death of a Salesman. They're reviving it. And just as certain as God made those little green apples, they're going to put it on television again one of these days. We should rise up in protest because it absolutely depicts an untrue, unfair picture of what selling is all about. And then there was Professor Harold Hill in uh, The Music Man, you know, River City. The consummate con man is what it's all about. And too many people view the professional salesperson in that light instead of in the true light in what he is. Fortunately, much of that is changing, and there are many people today who are beginning to get a clearer idea of what it really is to be a salesperson. Several years ago, the Secretary of Commerce of the United States said that what we need definitely is one million more salespeople because salespeople are the ones who keep that economy moving. The thing I love about let me start out by saying that the most outstanding salesman or sales lady that you know started out exactly as most of you did. That is, as a stumbling, bumbling, scared and in most cases broke individual with hands that consisted of all thumbs and a tongue that was about three inches thick when they opened their mouth to utter those first words in their first sales presentation. How many of you remember the first uh, prospect you ever talked to? Can I see your hand? Let me just briefly start by sharing with you my first prospect. Hot August day, this was way back yonder in 1947. Now that's a long time ago. In those days, salespeople, and we were in direct sales, wore suits. It was August, but there I had on a suit of clothes. I well remember I'd borrowed $50 to get started, bought myself a suit of clothes, a nice little briefcase, and a hat. In those days, we wore hats. I'd gone through the training school. I was all ready to go. We were out knocking on doors. We had a, quote, canned presentation in those days. Never will I forget, I took my wife with me on my first call. Now, she was out in the car. I don't know what help she was going to be, but, you know, there was a certain amount of comfort to know that there she was in case somebody got after me. To this day, I could drive to that first house that I knocked on, if it's still there. Knocked on the door, and the little lady came to it. She, I guess, was about 65, 70, maybe 75 years old, relatively harmless. I mean, actually, I, I weighed her about 150 pounds at that time. But when she opened that door, my carefully canned, planned sales presentation went right down the drain. And I tried to say something, and almost nothing would come out. And finally, her, she, sensing my difficulty, said, uh, Young man, would you like a drink of water? Well, I didn't realize how thirsty I was until that precise moment, but when she offered me that drink of water, I gladly accepted it. That was my first presentation, and I'll never forget it. I have forgotten whether I told her the purpose of my mission or not. I was so delighted to get out of there alive, and I promise you, I am not exaggerating when I say that. Yes, everybody starts in essentially the same place. I want to point out something which a lot of people don't understand, really, about the world of selling. It's relatively easy to teach somebody how to sell, to use the right words, the right phrases, how to demonstrate the product. That really is not that difficult. 
whether you happen to be a school teacher or a child or that professional in the world of selling, the principles are the same. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. How many of you have ever been on your way to work? As you were driving along to work, your mind was neither positive nor negative. You were just kind of in neutral riding along. And all of a sudden, some idiot pulls out in front of you. I mean, he cuts you off at the pass, and you have to hit your brakes and you hit your horn all at the same time. And when you do, you proceed to give him a piece of your mind. Why don't you watch where you're going, you dummy? I could have been killed. Ought to put people like you in jail. That's what they ought to do. Uh, life's not safe around here anymore. They'll get you off the streets, and if I catch you, I'm going to do exactly that. Oh, you're really upset. You get on down to the office and what do you do? You tell the first person you see about these dumb, dumb drivers around here. Ought to put them in jail. Your life is not safe anymore. And you go on and on. You tell the second person you see and the third person you see and the fourth person you see about these crazy drivers around you. Must be drunk or on drugs or something else. Your life's not safe anymore. And you go on and on. And in the meantime, the man who committed the dastardly deed rides merrily along completely unaware of the fact that he is in complete control of you. Completely unaware of the fact that you even exist. And yet he's telling you how to think, how to act, and how to perform. He's affecting your relationship with those people who are under you, those who are over you, those who are around you. He is in charge of your productivity. And as I say, he doesn't even know that you exist. It is the ultimate put-down. Now, what I'm getting at is this. You have reacted to a situation in life. And the question I ask is, do you respond to life or do you react to life? Let me share this little personal experience. A few years ago, I was leaving the bank down in Dallas, and as I left the bank and pulled out into the flow of traffic, I did it half right. Now, what that means is I looked to the right. And as I started to pull out into the flow of traffic, all of a sudden I heard the screeching of brakes and the sounding of a horn, and I hit my brakes very quickly and looked up just in time to see this big dude come riding by in a big old Mercedes automobile. And he had the fiercest look on his face I have ever seen in my life. I'll tell you, if looks could have killed people, I'd have been a dead man right then and there. If looks would melt steel, I would have had to bought myself a new car. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like it in my life. And as he rode past, I looked up at him. I said, Ha! <laughs> the guy did a double take, you know, and he shook his head and said, Ha! <laughs> Probably wondering who in the world was that. Now, I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that that is a better response than for me to shake my fist at him and invite him to get out of his car and come on back and why don't you watch where you're going, you dummy, and have him stop and back up and come pull me out of my car and whoop up on me. I just believe that I had the proper response. Now, let me stress something. To respond is positive. To react is negative. You get sick and go to the doctor. He gives you a prescription and says, see me tomorrow. You go back the next day and he starts shaking his head and says, man, we've got to do something, got to change the prescription. Your body is reacting to the medicine. But if you go back the next day and he smiles and says, hey, it's working, your body is responding to the medicine, then everybody's happy and excited. 
Now, let me ask you, how many of you in this live audience have, have ever been stood up on an appointment which you had firmly set? Can you see your hands? How many of you have ever had somebody uh, share with you that they weren't particularly enamored of you, your company, your product, your goods, your services, and furthermore, they didn't really care for you sticking around or them wanting to do business with you anymore? How many of you have ever, in short, been rejected by someone else? Can I see your hands, ladies and gentlemen? Well, you see, to miss a sale is not necessarily negative, not necessarily bad, if you can learn from it, first of all, and unless you let it affect you negatively on the next call you go on. Now, if it affects you negatively, which means simply you have reacted to it, then it can be a very, very bad situation. So the question is, do you respond or do you react? I think it's true that in the world of selling, every human being who ever sells, unless they're in a store where everybody comes in and they never make phone calls and never go see anybody, everybody has been stood up on appointments. Everybody, if they've been in the business very long, has had those occasions when something they said, maybe they were just mildly persistent, but they raised the dander of another individual, and so they are subject to some verbal abuse. Now, if you can understand in most cases the intent of the other individual is not to hurt you, but rather it reveals that they themselves are hurting. And if you can understand that, that helps make it a little easier for you to sell more, do more, be more, have more. Makes it easier for you, if you will, to build your sales career. Do you respond or do you react? Judge Ziegler, who happens to be my brother, one of the outstanding speakers on the platform in America today, in 1964 set the record for the Salad Master Corporation out of Dallas, Texas. And that record stood for several years. Obviously, with inflation, everything since then has been broken a number of times. But he sold in 1964 over $104,000 worth of cookware that year. That is a lot of cookware, especially for those days. But he, like all the rest of us, on occasion was stood up on his appointments. And so we simply call this the stood up close. And he would uh, conduct these group demonstrations, cook up a bunch of food, as I've indicated earlier. And uh, the couples would come in and make the appointments to see them the next day. Well, he'd get there the next day at the appointed time, precisely, let's say, at 6.30, and in getting the appointments the night before, he'd found out what their working hours were, and so he was there at 6.30, there wasn't a sign of a human being there. Well, now, the average salesperson, when they're greeted with a situation like that, they mutter on their breath and say, I can't understand people give you an appointment. It's just, it's just not right. I don't know about folks like that. Matter of fact, I don't know about this uh, profession of selling. All they really get upset. When Judge Ziegler would stood up on an appointment like that, it just tickled him to death. He grinned from ear to ear. He said he knew, and he knew that he knew that here was a sure sale. He could not get over the excitement of them not being there. <laughs> the next day at precisely the same time at 6.30, he would again show up on that front door. And he would be so apologetic, he'd say, you know, I'm just so embarrassed about yesterday. I did everything I could to see you, but it just wasn't possible. Now, let me stress the point. He had done everything humanly possible to see them. He had been there. And he said you would be amazed at the number of full-grown people who would let him take the blame for their discourtesy. 
We need kind of grin and say he knew he had to sail because if they didn't have enough backbone to greet him the first day, how, what kind of chances they have against a highly motivated, dedicated, committed, highly professional, enthusiastic salesman who completely and totally believed in the product he was selling. Yeah, he said when they stood me up, I would always grin and write that one in the book as a sure sale. Yeah, he said, I knew I had it. How many of you are in a sales situation where you have to sometimes deal with every member of the family, including the three-year-olds, the two-year-olds, the eight-year-olds, and everybody else? How many of you have ever been in a sales situation where uh, you're trying to demonstrate something and, uh, and little uh, uh, Sally, who needs her diapers changed, comes crawling in, you know, and uh, starts getting around into the things you are? Or the five-year-old kid comes running in and stomps in the briefcase. Around. How many of you have ever been in a situation where the child just gets all over the place? And the parents, you know, would say, Now, Sally, don't you do that. Or, Son, don't mess with the salesman samples. Uh, my brother has said on many occasions he's had the husband and the wife wringing their hands and finally the husband says to the wife, can't you do something with that child? And after a period of time, you know, they're pleading, son, won't you please behave? And my brother gets all excited again. He says he knows if they can't handle a three-year-old child. How are they going to be able to deal with a highly enthusiastic, completely motivated, dedicated, turned-on salesperson? He said, I love to see the kids climbing over everything. He said, I know I got me a sale. Now, let me, uh, let me stress a point, and we call that the impossible child close. But let me, uh, let, let me say something here that is so critically important, lest we not miss the critical area of what we're talking about. And that is this, his conviction in the product. He said, and my brother loves all people, but he particularly loves little children. And he's especially concerned about those who do not have the advantages and benefits of parents who love them enough to discipline them and require that they act properly when they have guests in the house. He said the chances are pretty solid that they are never going to get the right food, the right care, the right anything else. And he said he gets more determined than ever to make certain that they at least have the benefit of having a set of cookware in that home so that if they do decide to cook, they'll be able to cook the food in the most nutritious way possible. Yes, you can either respond and make the sale or you can react and miss the sale. It really, in many cases, is about that simple. But you see, the salesperson doesn't sell. It is the whole person who sells. The complete man, the complete woman is what I'm talking about when I say the whole person. Now, we want to explore some of the characteristics of the professional salesperson because I believe if we understand something about this professional, it will make it easier for us to sell more. Please understand that, first of all, the professional understands that logic makes people think but emotion makes them act. If you use all logic in a sales presentation, you're going to end up with the best educated prospect in town who will go right down the street and buy from somebody else. If you use all emotion in a sales presentation, you might well motivate them into taking some action tonight, but then the probability of a cancellation tomorrow is greatly increased. 
But if you tie the logic and the emotion together, making them want to own what you're selling now, but logically giving them enough reason so they can justify the purchase not only to themselves, but to their wives, to their husbands, to their CPA, to the banker, to the brother-in-law, to the next-door neighbors, and everybody else. That's really where logic and why it is so important for what happens after the sale. So the professional understands that he must deal with both logic and emotion as well. Now let me stress the point. The eye primarily are the source of our logic. The ears are the source of our emotion. And to give you an illustration which all of you will understand, if I write that redhead of mine a letter and tell her how much I love her, she appreciates that. And she is delighted to get it. And I often do that very thing because she sees it now in black and white and there it is, the record is there. She responds to that in a certain way. But if I whisper into her ear how much I love her, I can tell you that the response from that, the emotional response is infinitely greater you see, the eye is logic, the ear is emotion. And what we are attempting to say is that you tie logic and emotion together as often as you can in a presentation. Now, in America, we have been conditioned to believe the things that we see and to doubt the things that we hear. And that started really when you were born. At the date of your birth, you know, there you were laying down in the crib in the hospital and you heard some words come down the car that, well, Charlie, it can't believe everything you hear. Now, you all know that, can't believe everything you hear. And you've heard that a million times since birth. But while you were in that crib, you also started hearing something else. Listen, I was there. I saw it. I saw it with my own two eyes and seeing is... Yeah, even though it ain't, we have been conditioned to believe that it is. Now, what I mean when I say, even though it ain't, let me, let me see if I can demonstrate a couple of things for you. Would you just empty your hands for a moment, please? Just empty your hands. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I'm going to say one, two, three, go. Then, I want you, if you will, just to slap your hands, okay? One, two, three, go! <laughs> now, if you'll turn your recording back and listen to what just happened you will notice that even though I slowed my presentation down dramatically, even though I instructed you specifically, even though I demonstrated exactly what I wanted you to do, you did not pay any attention at all to what I was saying, but you were watching me carefully and you did exactly what I did. You see, you have been conditioned to do exactly the same thing. Another example, if you and I were to see a traffic accident, same time, same place, under exactly the same circumstances, chances are excellent that 20 minutes later, you'd be given a wrong report on it. 
at least one of us would be given a wrong report on it. Maybe both of us would be given a wrong report. And yet there we were. We saw everything that took place. Another example. We watch our Sunday's heroes, you know, and the good guy goes out to catch the pass. And just about to catch it, the bad guy comes along and slaps it away. And we jump up off the sofa, you know, we're watching on television. We rant and we rave and we whoop and we shout and we snort and we scream and we holler. And we accuse the official of being dumb and blind and prejudiced and biased. Why, he fouled our man. Anybody could see. He fouled our man. Those dumb, blind officials. I don't know what we're going to do with them. Oh, we're upset. Then they run a replay. And we say, well, it's about time they got one right. They've been missing them all day long. You see, just because you see it doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it is. But the American public has been conditioned to believe that seeing is believing. And with that in mind, we need to let them see, but we also need to let them hear. Please remember that the prospect does not buy based on what you tell them. They do not buy based on what you show them. They do buy based on what you tell them and show them which they believe. That's the reason I keep talking about the credibility of the salesperson himself or herself. Because regardless of who you are and regardless of what you sell, whether you're a dentist, a salesperson, whatever it is that you do, many of these characteristics will be just as applicable as they are for the person who is specifically selling a product. Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For more information about equipment financing and asset-based loans, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. Or call us at 866-611-7457. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to The Core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. And thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.